0: The Antichrist. You know, I heard a presentation once, or I heard uh, somebody speaking once, they they were claiming that Prince Charles was the Antichrist. And I know, I don't know if you've heard that one. (laughs) And there have been a variety of other people who have been suggested who could have been the Antichrist. But what we want to do tonight is we want to look at what does the Bible say about this topic. That's where we have to begin. You know, when it comes to counterfeits... What they generally do in banks, I used to know a girl who worked in a bank, and they would examine the legitimate currency, the legitimate banknotes, and they would know them so well that when a counterfeit came along, it became easier to identify. And what we have attempted to do in this series thus far is to reveal what the Bible says about Jesus, what the Bible says about the plan of salvation various different teachings of the Bible in order for us to know the truth, because the Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free, one of my favourite verses in the Bible, you will know the truth, the truth will make you free, but the Bible also draws back the curtain and reveals the tactics and the strategy of the enemy, and the, one of the things that the Bible says about the enemy is that serpent of old, he was more cunning than any other beast of the field. In fact, the Bible says, in the New, I think in the King James Bible, it says he was subtle. In other words, he doesn't operate, he doesn't play by the rules, as you're probably aware, but he also operates in a very underhanded manner, in a very deceptive manner. And so we want to understand when we talk about the Antichrist, what this counterfeit is. Is all about. When we uh, talk about the Antichrist, for every truth of God, the devil has a counterfeit. Okay? For every truth of God, the devil has a counterfeit. And we've seen some of these through the series thus far. We mentioned, uh, already mentioned this that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so that's the way he operates. The Bible also tells us, through the words of Jesus in the sermon, just uh, when he was talking about signs of the times and signs of his coming, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. In other words, even God's faithful people would be in danger of being deceived unless God had provided his truth for us. And so that's why God provides the Bible for us. All right, here is where we see the term Antichrist. In 1 John 2 18, John is writing a letter to the church at large. He says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. Here John says, you have heard that the Antichrist, the Antichrist, definite article, the Antichrist is coming. But then he says, even now many Antichrists have already come. So in other words, uh, the word Antichrist simply means either in the place of Christ or against Christ. So anybody who is against Christ is an antichrist. Okay? So that's the general when he says, even now many antichrists have come. But he does specifically identify there's a the antichrist that is coming. You get that? So there's one specific one that he has in mind, but he also says many antichrists have come. I remember growing up in the UK, there was a... Uh, a rock band, it was a punk rock band called the Sex Pistols who emerged in the mid-70s and one of their songs was called Anarchy in the UK and its opening line was, I am an Antichrist. And I think they were. (laughs) By, By the way that they conducted themselves, I think they probably were. So Anybody who's against Christ can be an Antichrist, but he pictures here, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Let's move on to another verse, 1 John 4, verse 3. He says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So John here is again alluding to this Antichrist that is coming, But he's saying the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world in his day. Now we just have to remember when John lived. John lived in the first century AD. This was written towards the latter part, the the latter end of the first century AD. It gives us a bit of a time frame there. Alright, the Antichrist. We've mentioned already the, the word Antichrist can mean the adversary of Christ or in the place of Christ. It's important that we understand those terms. Now in the Bible, scholars have recognised that the, though the word Antichrist doesn't actually appear in the Bible that often, we have recognised that the Antichrist is also depicted by a number of other names in the Bible, such as the beast, such as Babylon such as the abomination of desolation, such as the little horn. And we'll talk about that a little more. So he goes by a variety of different names. And Jesus himself, in this chapter, Matthew 24, we started here a a long while back when we were talking about signs of the second coming. In Matthew 24, Jesus is dealing with prophecies about the time just before he comes again. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Here, Jesus refers to this abomination of desolation, another name for the Antichrist. And he says, It's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And whoever reads, let him understand. So, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go back to Daniel the prophet. We're going to take the advice of Jesus and we're going to go back to Daniel the prophet. We're actually going to go back to Daniel chapter 7 because we've been here before when we talked about this heavenly judgment scene. We talked about Daniel chapter 7. But there's far more in Daniel chapter 7. We want to have a look, see what it says here. Daniel 7, 2 and 3, it says, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea each different from the other. Daniel is describing a vision that he has had and he describes the the four winds are swirling up the great sea and there are four beasts, four creatures, four animals, okay, that emerge. Now, what is this water that's swirling around this great sea? In the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 15, it tells us, He said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, don't worry about that line, are peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues. In other words, it tells us in the Bible what some of these symbols means. The great masses of waters represent peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues. These four beasts are coming up out of the water. They're coming up out of this vast population center of the earth. Now, we can understand that a little bit. Have you ever been to uh, perhaps a concert or some other kind of performance and you know, there's just thousands of people in the crowd and, they, and the commentator might say, and there's a sea of people out there. You heard that term before? Yeah, this is using the same terminology, that the waters represent multitudes of people. It says, those great, great beasts, which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. We're wondering, what are these four kings, or sorry, what are these four beasts, these four animals, these four creatures, what do they represent? The Bible itself tells us those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. It goes on and says, Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. In other words, these four beasts... Simply represent, represent kingdoms, nations, or political powers. And we can understand that because we still do that today, don't we? For instance, if I said to you next weekend the Wallabies and the Springboks are playing, who would the Wallabies be? You're not sure, eh? It's Australia, right? Who would the Springboks be? South Africa. How did you know that? It's obvious, right? These creatures, you know what a springbok is? It's like a little gazelle, right? And they have it on their badge, on their shirt. And we know what a wallaby is, right? But we don't actually send wallabies out to play, do we? We send men in shirts out to play. But they're called the wallabies, why? Because that's representing Australia. We still use these different animals to represent different nations, don't we? Who are the Kiwis? I rest my case. Right? So we use different animals to represent different nations and that's just simply what God is doing here in Daniel chapter 7. You have four kingdoms. The four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Well, let's take a look at these four beasts and see where we're at. It says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Have you ever seen a lion with eagle's wings? No. It's obviously a, I mean, this is a vision that Daniel is having. This isn't a real lion, and we know what it represents. It represents a kingdom, a political power, a nation. But it's pictured there as a lion with eagle's wings. Wings in the Bible denote swiftness. And we can understand that, because if you were in a hurry to get somebody, you might say, look, I'd love to stay, but I've got to fly. Right? And that wouldn't necessarily mean that you've got to fly, but you know what I'm saying. You've got to move speedily. And the Bible simply uses that terminology. So this beast would move swiftly across the earth in terms of its ability to conquer. We actually know who this beast represents. And many, many people know who this beast represents and we're going to uncover that in a minute. Daniel is having this vision. It's Daniel chapter 7. He's having this vision. He's living in a country called Babylon. He's living in the city of Babylon when he has this vision. This lion with wings represents the nation of Babylon. How do we know that? Well, many scholars have understood this. But not only scholars, have you ever heard of the Rolling Stones? They've only been around 50 years. The Rolling Stones put out an album in 1997 called Bridges to Babylon. On the cover they had a Babylonian lion with a Babylonian beard standing on two feet like a man, straight out of Daniel chapter 7. Okay, what was the title? Bridges to Babylon. Okay, that was the the live concert tour. And you also have the same kind of imagery there. Okay, So even the Rolling Stones know that this is Babylon. Okay, But you don't have to take their word for it. When they uncovered some of the ruins of the ancient city of Babylon, they found these beautiful ceramic tiles of blue and gold and other colours. And there's this processional way... Which led to the Ishtar Gate, and they've been able to reconstruct these tiles. And you can go to the Berlin Museum, the Pergamon Museum, in Berlin, and you can see how these tiles have now been reconstructed on the walls, and it's fantastic to see. But you'll notice that there's a lion there, and what does he have? He has a wing. They're lions with wings along the processional way. In fact, there was a big statue to it at the entrance of Babylon and it's called, it was in black basalt, it was called the Lion of Babylon. But the Bible itself even tells us that the Lion is Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 7, it's describing Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon coming to Jerusalem to lay waste to it. He says, the lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. Certainly Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, actually burned it with fire in the end. And so this lion represents the kingdom of Babylon and the wings represent the swiftness with which it conquered its enemies. Notice here in Daniel chapter 2, do you remember? Seems like an eternity ago right now. But Daniel chapter 2, we had this image with the different metals representing the different nations and the gold head represented what? Babylon, Babylon, right? And simply what we're going to find is in Daniel chapter 7, we have Daniel chapter 7 following the same pattern as Daniel chapter 2. Here's a principle of Bible prophecy. In the Bible, you often find that a prophecy in the Bible is repeated but then enlarged upon. It is repeated so that you get your bearings and you say, okay, I know where we are, and then God enlarges upon it and adds more information. So you have this principle of Repeat and enlarge, repeat and enlarge. And that's what you find in the prophecies of Daniel. And so, all well and good, Babylon is represented by the lion there. But the prophecy continues. Daniel chapter 7, 5 through 7, it says, And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. This beast, which we already know is a kingdom because the Bible has told us these beasts represent kingdoms, this second kingdom represented that kingdom which overthrew the Babylonians. It was raised up on one side because it was made up of this coalition between the Medes and the Persians, just like we have a coalition today of the liberals and the nationals, right? But one's bigger than the other, isn't it? And likewise, in the Medo-Persia Empire, Persia became greater than the Medes. You've barely ever heard of the Medes, but you've heard of the Persians. Persian rugs, Persian cats, Persian Gulf, right? But this represents Persia. By the way, the three ribs in its mouth represent the three nations it conquered, which were Babylon, Egypt and Lydia. This interpretation that I'm giving you about the lion and the bear and the leopard and so forth, this is not simply my idea. I have a, uh, a chart, a wall chart of world history going back 400 years from Archbishop Usher. He was an Anglican and he depicts these nations as the ones we're talking about today. They're in picture form and, and he says the bear represents the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. So here we see that that bear represents the Persian Empire. But the prophecy goes on. After this I looked and there was another, like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. This beast, which once again represents another kingdom, represents that kingdom which overthrew the Medes and the Persians. And that kingdom was the Greek Empire under the leadership of Alexander the great. It has upon its back four wings of a bird. So if two wings denote swiftness, what would four wings denote? Great swiftness. And indeed Alexander conquered all the territory south of Greece, all the way to Egypt, all the way across to the Indus River in India, and he did that in 12 years. Enormous achievement. It's... Uh, so that represents great swiftness. By the way, is a, leopard, uh, is a leopard a fast animal? Yeah, it's pretty fast, a leopard. And it's got the wings of, of the leopard as well. Uh, sorry, the wings of a bird. It's got four heads, and that is because when Alexander died at the age of 32, still a young man, age of 32 he died, and they said, who's going to inherit the kingdom? And he said, I'll give it to the strongest. And the kingdom got split up between four of his generals, which were Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy and Seleucus. And that's why that beast has four heads. It represents the leadership of that empire after Alexander. And so we put that in there, that represents the empire of Greece. The next one, it goes on in the Bible prophecy, Daniel chapter 7, 5 through 7, it says this. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. This beast is quite fascinating because Daniel is trying to describe it and he can't think of any animal to describe this beast. He just says it's it's, it's an extremely... What does he say? <laughs> Dreadful and terrible. That's about as much as he comes up with. And so you have this beast that he doesn't know what, how to describe it really. And that represents that empire that overthrew the Greeks. It represents the empire of Rome. Notice that it had iron teeth. And you remember that the legs were made of what? Iron. And so, so far, so good, this prophecy is simply following the same pattern as the Daniel chapter 2 prophecy. Now, we know that in the Daniel chapter 2 prophecy, after Rome, you went into the feet of iron clay and it says the feet of iron and clay. Uh, how many toes do you reckon that image had? Ten ten. I'm guessing 10. It doesn't say 10, but it does mention the toes. And most of us have 10 toes, so we can assume that it had 10 toes. This here had ten horns right? So there again there is a match between these two. By the way don't take my word for it, this is in the history books this is what many theologians and scholars have understood for centuries. If you were to go to Germany today you could go to Nuremberg Nuremberg in Germany and uh, you could go to the old city hall there, the old town hall in Nuremberg, the old council house and above the doors here I want you to notice what they've got. Here above this gateway you have the lion with wings and the bear and you have somebody in Babylonian garb and somebody in Persian garb there. They have been depicted in stone. Then you could go to the other doorway and you have the four-headed leopard here and somebody who looks a bit like Alexander the Great and then the, the terrible beast with the ten horns and a Roman figure here. So what I'm saying is the people who understood these things not only believed them and wrote them down, they set them in stone. Okay? So just uh, try and track with me because now it's is where we get to, to the interesting part you're probably thinking, what on earth does this have to do with the Antichrist? It's building. The history is building from the time of Daniel all the way through. We're up to the time of the Roman Empire now. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. Remember that beast had ten horns, yeah? And then it says, I was considering the horns, those ten horns. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words and it goes on it says I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. It goes on. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a period of time, a a period of time called a time, times and a half a time, which we'll unpack a little later. There is more information given in Daniel chapter 7 about this little horn than any of the other empires. So This chapter has described Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome but then it goes on to talk about this little horn power and whoever this little horn power is, it has to be of broader scope than those previous empires which is some feat when you think about it because more attention is given to it than to those other powers. So who is this little horn power? What I want to share with you tonight is some information about what former Christians believed about this little horn power. Who did the Christian theologians of yesteryear think the identity of this little horn power was? I'm going to give you another little clue here because this is also referred to in the book of Revelation which we will come on to next Friday. We're going to look at this again in another format, next Friday night. But clearly this little horn comes out of the Roman Empire, it comes out of Rome. In the book of Revelation it tells us it receives worship and in the book of Revelation it tells us that it is global in nature. So the question we have to ask is, is there a religious power that receives worship that comes out of Rome... That is global in its reach. And when you put it in those terms, those are the biblical parameters, it becomes perhaps easier to understand what this power could be. Let's go back 700 years. 700 years to my old country, England, there was a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Ever heard of John Wycliffe? John Wycliffe was sometimes referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. The Reformation really got started under Martin Luther about 500 years ago. But John Wycliffe was a reformer in England 700 years ago. Notice what he says here. John Wycliffe, 14th century, he says the Pope is Antichrist here on earth. Now if that's shocking to you, it probably should be. But I want you to pause for a moment to think about the history of the Christian church. The Roman faith over which the Pope presides has probably had more influence on the Christian world than any other institution. I mean it's, it's had an enormous influence and we want to see What else has been said. So this is John Wycliffe. He says the Pope, in his belief, is the Antichrist here on earth. What would lead him to say that? We're going to examine some of the evidence of why John Wycliffe would say such a thing, 700 years ago. In fact, um, R. Vaughan, in his uh, book, Life and Opinions of John Wycliffe, I want you to notice what he says here. In a tract which he published, this is John Wycliffe, he published a tract, on the schism of the Popes. Wycliffe called upon the people to consider whether these two priests were not speaking the truth in condemning each other as the Antichrist. Let me tell you what's going on here. They had had successive popes for a number of years and then the pope died and then two people emerged claiming to be the new pope in two separate locations. And so you had two people who were the pope at the time of John Wycliffe And guess what each Pope called the other one? The Antichrist. In other words, one of the first people to refer to the Pope as the Antichrist was the Pope. You get that? So each of these Popes named each other as the Antichrist. They said, you're the imposter. No, you're the imposter. Before too long, there were three Popes. And then you came to a meeting, a church council meeting called the Council of Constance in Germany where uh, they dealt with all of that and they appointed a single pope once again. But at this point in time, John Wycliffe is recognising the fact that both these two popes are calling the other the Antichrist and John Wycliffe is saying we could probably agree with them. Martin Luther, a couple of centuries later, "'Oh, how much pain it has caused me,' he said, "'though I had the scriptures on my side,' that I should dare to make a stand alone against the Pope and hold him forth as Antichrist. Martin Luther, the Lutheran Church, was founded after his teachings and he describes the Pope as Antichrist. Now listen, I want you to understand something. The Roman Catholic Church is the largest church in the world, right? More than a billion people in the Roman Catholic faith. There are many godly beautiful Christian people within the Roman Catholic faith. We are not talking about everybody in the Roman Catholic faith. We are talking here about a system that is unbiblical. And that's what these reformers were referring to. We want to make that very clear. Remember that one of the um, identifying characteristics of Antichrist is not only that it was against Christ, but that it is in the place of Christ. And under this system of government, they say that in order to gain forgiveness, you must come to that church to gain forgiveness. And the priest will exhibit, will dispense forgiveness to you. The Bible says there is only one man between God and men, the mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. We can go straight to Jesus on our knees to gain forgiveness according to the Bible. But here in this system, they had placed a priest between you and God and you had to gain forgiveness through the priest. They, in a sense, had taken the place of Christ. And this is why Martin Luther was of the opinion that the Pope was the Antichrist. John Knox, in the 16th century, after Martin Luther, you had teachers like John Calvin in Switzerland. And John Calvin... Uh, had a student, John Knox, and John Knox enjoyed what Calvin was teaching and he went back to Scotland and started what we know today as the Presbyterian Church. Knox wrote to abolish the tyranny which the Pope himself has for so many ages exercised over the Church and that the Pope should be recognised as the very Antichrist, the son of perdition, of whom Paul speaks. So here, John Knox is identifying the Pope as the Antichrist. John Wesley... Ever heard of John Wesley? The Methodist Church was founded upon the teachings of John Wesley. John Wesley was actually an Anglican minister in England, but the Methodist Church came out of his teaching. Referring to this power, he says, this seems to mean the Romish Antichrist. He also identified this power as the Antichrist. In a book called uh, The Blessed Hope, George Ladd, he writes this, Many of the great, Christian Reforma- Sorry, many of the great Christians of Reformation and post-Reformation times shared this view of prophetic truth and identified Antichrist with the Roman papacy. Among adherents of this interpretation were the Waldenses, the Hussites, Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Tyndale, Latimer and Ridley and a whole host of others. Here's another um, quote, Unfolding Daniel's Prophecies by R.A. Anderson. He says, Leaders such as Luther, Calvin, Knox and Cranmer pointed to Daniel 7 and Revelation 17, identifying the great apostasy with headquarters in Rome. The scriptural message of Revelation 18.4 formed the basis of many of their sermons. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. What had Rome done That was so desperately bad. Let's ask that question. Well, before we do that, the Bible itself had predicted that there would arise imposters and people who would draw away people from Christ. Notice what Paul um, spoke here in Acts chapter 20, 29 to 30. He says this, "'For I know this, "'that after my departure, "'savage wolves will come in among you, "'not sparing the flock,' Also from among yourselves, from within the church, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul predicted that after the departure of all the apostles, men would rise up to, from the church to draw people after themselves. And that is what we find happening. It, of course, it took place over a long period of time. It didn't happen overnight. But gradually compromises were made. How can we reach the pagan peoples? Well, maybe if we make a little bit of compromise, we can reach them better. Well, maybe if we make a little bit more compromise, we'll reach more. What if we make a little bit more compromise? Until the church that you have no longer resembles the church of the Bible. This is the way it happened. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, you remember the ten horns that rose out of the fourth beast, which represent Rome, says the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So apparently it's saying that these ten horns are ten kingdoms or kings that will rise out of the Roman Empire. And then it says another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. So if these ten kings or ten horns represent ten kings, a little horn would represent a little what? A little king or a little kingdom, right? You know what the smallest kingdom on earth is? It's the Vatican, right? And it even has a king. The Pope is the king of that kingdom. And uh, for the smallest kingdom on earth, it has an enormous reach, an enormous influence. But it said that he would subdue three kings. Notice what happens in history. The Heroli... Well, let's, let's do this... Those ten horns were represented by various Germanic tribes and some of them are listed here. The Hurulai kingdom met their fate with the Catholic Emperor Zeno. This little horn power was wanting to demonstrate its power in spiritual things and it faced some opposition and the Hurulai kingdom opposed them. But they met their fate with the Catholic Emperor Zeno in 493 AD. Another emperor, Justinian, exterminated the Vandals and then broke the power of the Ostrogoths in 538 AD. It was during this time that Justinian made a decree establishing the Bishop of Rome as the political and religious leader of Western Rome. Thus the three horns of Daniel's prophecy were plucked up by the roots, making the rise of the church in Rome a reality. The Huruli, the Vandals and the Ostrogoths were the three that were plucked up by the roots. By the way, the Vandals... Ever heard of vandalism? Yeah, well the vandals, they used to have these statues set up of the different Roman emperors and so forth, because they used to worship the Roman emperors and so forth. And the vandals were opposed to idol worship, so they used to knock the faces or the heads off these statues. And that was called vandalism. And so that's where that comes from. But they were exterminated and destroyed. And so you have the uprooting of these three kingdoms. In the book Leviathan, Thomas Hobbes, an historian, he says, if a man considers the original of this great ecclesiastical dominion that we know today as the Roman Catholic faith, he will easily perceive that the papacy is none other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon the grave thereof. In other words, they kind of just filled the gap. The Roman Empire kind of fell around 476 AD. It wasn't built in a day and it didn't fall in a day. But around 476 AD was the fall of Rome. This power began to emerge as being um, supreme around the year 538 AD. Notice what it says here in Daniel 7.24. As we continue to look at some of the evidence. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise after this kingdom. Then another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the others. Why? Because this is a religious and a political power. That's why it's different. In another book, The Church and Churches by uh, Dollinger, he says, out of the ruins of the Roman Empire, there gradually rose a new order of states whose central point was the papal see. Therefore, inevitably resulted a position not only new, but very different from the former. The Bible says this kingdom will be different. The historian says, yes, it was different because of the religious connotations of this power. It was both political and religious. The Bible also says about this little horn power, it says, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So, this little horn that comes up after the ten, its appearance is greater than the ten. Has that happened? the papacy in world affairs, it says, under the Roman Empire, the popes had no temporal power. They didn't have any political power. But when the Roman Empire had disintegrated and its place had been taken by a number of rude, barbarous kingdoms, the Roman Catholic Church not only became independent of the states in religious affairs, but dominated secular affairs as well. So it became this religious, political power. It goes on, it says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. The Most High is a reference to God himself. Notice some of the statements that the Roman papacy has made. Leo Pope Leo Thirteenth. he said this, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. I think that's a blasphemous statement. Talk about standing in the place of Christ. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Then the Catholic National in July 1895, it says, The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under veil of flesh. I think that's a blasphemous statement. I think there's only one Jesus and he's in heaven. This should not surprise us because, again, the Bible predicted that this would actually occur. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4, to 4, notice what it says. Paul is writing, and he's writing about the second coming. He's saying, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. He's saying, don't let people fool you that the the day of Jesus Christ has already come. You know there are some churches who believe Jesus has already returned. Do you know that? But the Bible describes that he's going to come in great power and glory and every eye shall see him. So it hasn't happened yet. And Paul is warning, saying, don't let anybody deceive you into imagining the day of Christ has already come. Notice what else he says. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, uh, perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now let me tell you what the temple of God is as far as the New Testament is concerned. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed AD 70. But the temple in the New Testament is very clear, and Paul, who is the same writer, he tells us, Know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? In other words, the church is the temple of God in the New Testament. That's what he says. And here we have this description that there will be someone who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple or in the church of God showing himself that he is God. What did we read before? We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. How has the church of Rome fallen away from truth? Paul said the second coming won't occur until there be a falling away. How has the Church of Rome fallen away? What's the big deal? Why is it called the Antichrist by those other reformers? Well, first of all, I'll just take you back to 321 AD. The first Sunday law was instituted. We've looked at that uh, last weekend. That was not um, instituted by the Church. It was instituted by Constantine, the Roman Empire, but it was endorsed in 364 AD. In 325, you have the introduction of Easter, as a celebration for Christians. Ever heard of the Babylonian god Ishtar? Have you ever seen Ishtar eggs? Or maybe they're called Easter eggs. Same word. They just borrowed that from the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. 336, Christmas, the birth of the Babylonian sod god Tammuz. Did you know that December 25th was not the birth of Jesus? Some people are shocked by this. I'm not trying to spoil your Christmas. I believe it's great to celebrate the birth of Jesus, amen? I think it's great to remember the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Glad that we do that. But we need to know some of the history here because there was a a pagan god called Tammuz who was believed to have been born on 25th of December or around that time and that's where the celebration of that day comes from. The Pope becomes Pontifex Maximus from the Babylonian cult. If you go to Rome today and you go to many of the Roman cathedrals in Rome, you will see the words Pontifex Maximus referring to the Pope, but it came from the Babylonian religion. By the way, have you ever heard of uh, the Pope being referred to in news bulletins as the Roman Pontiff? You've heard of that? Yeah, that's where it comes from, Pontifex Maximus. Mary is worshipped in place of Ishtar. That's why the Roman Catholics have this prominence with Mary. The Bible has a different view. Uh, Saturday declared an enforced day of work. Infant baptism became compulsory, burning incense in the church. All these things, as the years progressed, they gradually moved further and further away from biblical practice and more and more towards these pagan practices of the past. 700 AD Easter eggs were instituted. By the way, when you come to Easter and you have the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, what do Easter eggs and bunny rabbits have to do with that? They're just pagan fertility symbols, right? We just borrowed them and brought them straight in to the Christian church around 700 AD. Worship of images and saints, doctrine of transubstantiation. This was a big one. They believed that by praying over the bread and the wine that they could turn the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Jesus. Okay, we believe that the bread and the wine are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus and that's quite appropriate. But what's interesting, if you read in their writings, they believe that the priest, by saying the prayer, can turn the bread into the body of Jesus and they write that he becomes the creator of his creator. I have a problem with that, because if you're the creator of the creator, who's greater? You are. Celibacy of priests. There's nothing in the Bible about celibacy of priests. You know, Peter, whom the Roman church would claim as the first pope, you know he was married. The Bible says Peter's mother-in-law got sick and Jesus healed her. And yet they insist on the celibacy of priests and your confession of priests, Bible reading by laymen, forbidden in 1229. You've got to understand this. It was illegal for you to read the Bible. Why? Because if you read the Bible, you might discover that the Bible has a different religion to the Church of Rome. And this is why we want to place Bibles in your hands. This is why, praise the Lord, if you've got a smartphone, you've got thousands of Bibles at your fingertips. You have access to the word of God. We should thank the Lord every day that we have access to the word of God. It wasn't always the case. 1229, Pope claims supremacy over all rulers. 1439, purgatory becomes dogma. This is interesting because purgatory was really the straw that broke the camel's brack for Martin Luther because the Roman church was coming around selling bits of paper that says, your grandma, she might have passed away, but she's in purgatory. She might be on her way to heaven, but right now she's in purgatory, suffering the fires of purgatory. And here's a piece of paper, and if you pay me some money, I'll give you this piece of paper that guarantees her some time out of purgatory. And they were selling what they call indulgences. And they would sell these pieces of paper, and the money was going to build St. Peter's in Rome. That's what the money was for. And when Martin Luther saw this going on, he is a Roman Catholic, Martin Luther. He said, this is wrong. There's something that's got to be done about this. This is not biblical. You can't sell salvation. Jesus provided it free by grace. And so you have these other things, tradition declare equal to the Bible, absolute infallibility of the Pope. I just don't believe that. And Mary declared, mother of God. If you're the mother of God, what does that? Wouldn't that suggest that you're greater than God? So all of these things led the Church of Rome away from biblical teaching. And part of the Reformation is to bring people back to the Bible. That's what we need to be. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 21, it says, I was watching and the same horn, this little horn, was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. There have been literally millions of people who have been killed by the Church of Rome simply because they did not adhere to their particular view of religion. We might talk about 30,000 Huguenots who were massacred at the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of August 22, 1572. This took place in Paris and other regions around France. These people were Protestants. They were protesting the unbiblical teachings of the Roman church and they were massacred because of it. The Western Watchman, the author writes this, he says, the church has persecuted. Only a novice in church history will deny that talking from a Roman Catholic point of view, it says, we have always defended the persecution of the Huguenots and the Spanish Inquisitions. When she thinks it good to use physical force, she will use it. Now, you remember what we spoke about this morning about what the Bible says about hell? If you believe that God will torture and torment the wicked for all eternity in the fires of hell... That gives you a certain picture of God. And that might lead you to torture people in this life because that's if that's the way God behaves towards people who don't obey the laws of the church, then shouldn't the church operate in the same way? And so our theology, our understanding of what God is like, affects the way we practice Christianity. And they began to torture people simply because... They would not believe and follow that particular teaching. It says that this little horn power shall intend to change times and law. Notice this is a Roman Catholic uh, publication. It says the Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws and to dispense with all things even the precepts of Christ. I disagree. I just disagree. goes on, we mentioned this before, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century or a little later. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday not from any directions noted in the scriptures but from the church's sense of its own power. It began to exercise its own power. It says the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time. This is very cryptic writing. It's in a prophetic passage and it's symbolic. Let me tell you what it means. A time represented a year. You can go back in Daniel chapter 4 and you'll note that seven times pass over Nebuchadnezzar. He went mad for seven years. And it said seven times pass over him. And that means a time represents one year. Times, that's two years. Half a time is half a year. In a biblical year, there were 360 days in one year. You find this actually when you uh, look at the the time of Noah and the flood. But there are 360 days. They used to have 12 months of 30 days. One year represents 360 days. Two years was 720. Half a year is 180. You add them together, you get 1,260 days. This time period is written in the Bible seven times, but only in the books of Daniel and the Revelation. It's twice in Daniel, five times in the Revelation. And it represents not 1,260 days, but rather 1,260 years. Because in Bible prophecy, in these prophetic time periods, one day represents one year. And that represented this period of papal supremacy, 1,260. Years, The Roman Church State's power became supreme in Christendom in 538 AD due to a letter of the Roman Emperor Justinian, known as Justinian's Decree. It would only become effective in 538, which set up and acknowledged the Bishop of Rome as the head of all the churches. It gave the Roman Church State political power, civil power, as well as ecclesiastical power. The letter became part of Justinian's code and the foundational law of the empire. And that year, Pope Vigilus ascended the throne under military protection of Belisarius. And so you have this 1,260 years of papal supremacy. The Ostrogoths, the last of the Arian tribes to oppose Rome, were defeated in that year. Did anything happen 1,260 years later? Well, yes, it did. 1,260 years later, Napoleon is ruling In 1798, he sends his general Berthier into Rome, broke the Roman church's power, and the the, the Pope in Rome was taken, he was arrested, put in prison, he died in prison, 1798, and thus fulfilling the 1,200 years, the 260 years of papal supremacy. In this chapter alone of Daniel 7, there are 10 identifying characteristics all of them fit the Roman papal power. If you know of any other power that these ten identifying characteristics fit, then I'd like to know about it. I have no pleasure standing up here identifying papal Rome, but I'm simply repeating what has been said by the reformers over 700 years ago. I'm simply making those identifications based on what the Bible says in these ten identifying characteristics. But you remember in Daniel 7, we read about that judgment scene, it says, but the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Soon Jesus is coming and he will... Gather his saints to take them home. I want to be a part of that people. Do you? Yes. We have a choice tonight do we follow Christ or do we follow Antichrist? That's our choice. It's not going to be the popular choice to follow Christ. I'm going to read uh, next week about all the world wondering after the Antichrist power, but we want to follow Christ and not Antichrist. The Bible says this Jesus. We're going to finish with his words. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. You're not going to find eternal life anywhere else. You won't find eternal life if you follow Antichrist, but you will if you follow Christ. He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Do you want to be a follower of Christ tonight? Do you want to say, Jesus... Wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. In spite of the fact that it may not be popular, it might not be what the masses are doing, but it's what I want to do. I want to follow the Lamb wheresoever he goes. Is that your determination?